We are doing a series called Kingdom Tasters. We are looking at the miracles of Jesus and we're looking at them because they give us a taste of what God's kingdom is like. So God's kingdom is the state of the universe where everything happens and is the way God intended it to be, where God is in charge and all the mess that's happened because we've chosen to be in charge is removed. And so all pain, suffering, ego, selfishness, all those things are gone. And instead, we have the perfect order of things. Now, this is what we look forward to when Jesus comes again, the, the time when God creates a new heaven, new earth, and makes the universe correct again, and we live in that state. But what we see in miracles is that future state breaking in to our current broken age. So we're looking at miracles, thinking about that, but we're also thinking because of what Jesus has done, that that future state, those future uh, kingdom aspects are also available to us now and break in this idea that God's kingdom is now, but it's not yet. It's kind of partly here and comes and goes, and we look forward to it when we have it in full. So we're looking at those miracles. So today we are going to look at the famous miracle where Jesus turned water into wine. And it was an amazing miracle. Here I have some water into this wine glass. It was an amazing miracle, but it is something that once you have enough faith, it can just happen. So today we're going to look at this miracle and what this reveals to us is a couple of very counterintuitive ideas about God. Ones that we can tend to kind of take for granted or become complacent about, but actually are unique to Christian thinking about what God's like. And actually, even though we might think we know them, often we live our lives like we don't believe them. So we will think about those things. But this miracle is in John chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Uh, the next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mothers told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother, to mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instruction. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This story is in the Gospel of John and John says at the end of his Gospel, he says, I, I can't include everything Jesus has done because there's not enough books in the world to, to fit all of that. So we know John has carefully selected the different stories and accounts he's told. 
And this story of a wedding would have been selected not just to show Jesus was powerful and could turn water into wine, but because it was something John thought his readers should know. And any of John's Jewish readers would have known that the wedding throughout the Bible is a great symbol of God's connection to his people. And so in this story, we can kind of read this, that it is a foreshadowing, a bigger picture than just an event that happened 2,000 years ago in a small village when a couple got married. And when Mary says to Jesus, oh, they have, they've run out of wine, you should do something. And he says to her, my, my hour has not yet come. He's not talking about, I haven't clocked on, my shift hasn't started. Whenever Jesus is talking about my hour or the hour, he is talking about his death. He is talking about going to the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, what he did is he started, he enabled the process by which the great wedding between God and his people is going to be able to happen. And so later in the Bible, in Revelations 19, we see uh, John has this vision of heaven and he sees this great celebration and joy at the marriage between the bride and the lamb. So you can look that up in Revelations 19, but there are three characters in that story. There is the bride, there is a prostitute, and there is the lamb. So I just want to think about what's going on because this is the picture, this helps us understand the kingdom that we are looking forward to and the kingdom that breaks in through our lives now. So first we have the bride. The bride is a symbol of God's people intimately connected through marriage to God. It is an invitation for us to become God's bride. And so this is one of those counterintuitive, unique points about Christianity that we should recognise. The way God sets out to relate to us, and he uses the analogy of a marriage. He doesn't use the analogy of a master and a servant. But he uses the analogy of a marriage. So if you think about marriage, it is mutually committed. Both parties say whatever happens through riches, poor, sickness, health, till death do we part, we are connected and committed to one another. So it's not only us saying, yeah, God, I want to be connected to you. This is God, the creator of the universe, saying, I want to be connected, committed to you. Marriage is also comprehensive. It's not, it's not like a job contract. It's not something you just do between these hours for this many weeks a year. Marriage encompasses all of our life. It is a comprehensive and complete connection between all of me and all of all of the spouse, so all of us and all of God. And finally, it is intimate, intimate in a way that no other relationship is. Intimate in a connection and a mutual vulnerability and uh, access to one another. Now, I don't think there are any other religions that talk about the relation between God's creation, his people and God in such a way. And this is part of our understanding or the way we understand God. So in monotheistic religions, when you have one God, the preeminent quality of that God has to be power because the first thing that God does is create the universe. And then once he's created the universe, he can have relationships with his creation because there's only one God. So before 
the time-space universe begins. There's only one God. He exercises power and then he can exercise relationship. But for Christianity, we don't have that. We have one God, but that God has three persons. So before anything existed, before he exercises the power of creation, already we have love. We are told that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love one another, are in deep relationship with one another. And then creation happens, and this overflows then into his relationship with us. So we have a God whose primary expression, whose primary characteristic, the preeminent element of the God is love, not power. And this is really important and unique to think that is how God relates to us, that he wants to be married to us. So we have the bride. The second character in the story is the prostitute. And the prostitute in the Bible is the represented by Babylon, and it's an analogy for everything that the world might offer us, the world's idea of success, of pleasure, of security, of identity. It's a life lived without God, and it uses this idea of an adulterous relationship with a prostitute because it's us turning away from our true love with God, from that offer of commitment and comprehensive relationship and intimacy, and instead putting our affections elsewhere. Now, instead of God being our husband, we are turning to other things. And this is a really helpful way, I think, to understand sin. That sin is about relationship. It's not that we break rules, that there's a list of rules we have to keep, and when we break those rules, we sin. It's a better way to understand sin is sin is when we are breaking a relationship. So sin is breaking God's heart. And again, this is a remarkable thing that God would be connected to us so much that he would allow his heart to be connected to the way we relate to him. That he's not just a judge and a rule keeper, but he is a passionate lover of us and finds it hard when we turn away to other things. And this is why the call on our lives as Christian is to love God above everything else. And then finally, the third character we have in the story is the lamb. The lamb we know is Jesus, but the lamb has to be sacrificed to provide for the feast at the wedding. That The lamb is the ability by which we can gather around food and celebrate the wedding. And we have this idea, Jesus talking about, my hour has not yet come, that Jesus knows that it's going to cost him everything to enable this wedding to happen. So all of this is in Jesus' mind in John 2, because it's such a wonderful picture, as he is thinking about the kingdom to come and the hour of his death that will enable that to happen. He is thinking about the celebration and joy of that event, that connection, finally, of the universe being restored and this relationship being perfected between creation and God. He's thinking about that in the context of a marriage in Cana where the celebrations are just about to grind to a halt because they've run out of wine. So Jesus, following the call of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, gets involved and he takes these jugs, these big jugs full of water and turns them into wine. About a thousand bottles of wine it would have made that he makes, like way too much wine. What a celebration, an overindulgence and extravagant amount of wine that he creates. And it says in the text that when he does this, he is revealing his glory to his disciples. 
In the Bible, glory is this word that tries to sum up the sheer importance and weight and significance of God's significance of God's presence. And here they start to see it in Jesus. And we now hear another counterintuitive insight into what God is like. We are so tempted to think of God as a disappointed, disapproving, severe, sullen, uh, melancholy, party pooper God, you know, who isn't interested in fun, who is serious and concerned. And yet we now see the revelation of God's glory in creating wine for a party. You see, we need to understand that God is a God of celebration and joy. And so often we don't think like that because we think we take on our human relationships and we think, oh, God's going to be like that. God's authority and authority clamps down and authority, uh, you know, bounds in and, and, and constrains. And yet here we see God, the ultimate authority, who wants to pour out joy and celebration. So that's where I want to leave us with this idea. If we're thinking about the kingdom that we see in the miracles, but think about how it breaks into our lives, I want us this week, I want to suggest this week that we think about where is it we are finding celebration and joy in our lives and understanding that these are love gifts from God, that we don't need to feel like we don't deserve them, we're not worthy of them, because we're not. This has all happened because what Jesus has done. But this is a love gift from the bridegroom to us, that he wants us to experience joy and celebration. So we don't feel that it's inappropriate. We actually seek after it because finding those things, however small, is an aspect of discovering God's kingdom. Now, sometimes it can be tough to find joy and celebration. Life can be a slog and we live in this age where it, the, the universe doesn't work like it's supposed to, so life is a slog. But even in the midst of that, sometimes we can discover joy and celebration. I find really helpful when I'm overwhelmed, a breath prayer where it's just a, a phrase that I say over and over again to kind of centre myself, I guess, on God. And I have this line I say, God is good and the world is full of beauty. God is good and the world is full of beauty. And I find when I do that, I lift my eyes from my problems and I look and I just see the clouds, the trees, the way the light is working. And it encourages me. It just makes me, it offers this level of transcendence from my everyday slog. And it just seems to do something to me inside. And I think that is the kingdom coming. But however we do it, whatever we start to notice around ourselves, that we think, actually, this is joy. We could celebrate this. We can be thankful for this. We should just kind of press into that this week because that's God's kingdom breaking in for us and hopefully overflowing into the world around us. And even as we try this week to think about celebration and joy, we can be joyously celebrating about the fact that this is open to us. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, um, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We are in a slog. We need endurance to get through this. But look at why it gives us, why we find this endurance. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus 
the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. We can celebrate that we are given this gift of joy, not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because Jesus knew this joy was waiting him and went through the cross to enable us to experience it, but also partly to bring joy to God as well, because this is his intention for his relationship with us. So let's pray. God, we thank you that your kingdom is a place of joy and celebration, and that we have this wonderful feast and party to look forward to, and a eternity experience the fullness of that joy in our whole existence. But even now, God, your kingdom joy and celebration can break into our lives. And we pray that we would be open, alert, and aware of that, that we would be primed and ready to experience your joy and celebrate it, Lord, even in the slog. And we pray that this joy and celebration would also overflow and affect the people and situations around us. So this week, we thank you for your joy. We thank you for your celebration. We want to invite it into our lives. And we pray you would help us see and experience it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.